the Sober Experiment podcast by Be Sober with Alex and Lisa. Season three is sponsored by IPHM, an accreditation board for holistic therapists and training providers around the world. I'm Alex, one half of the Sober Experiment. And I'm Lisa, the other half. Morning. Good morning. <laughs> I'm in a good mood today. Do you know what's just happened? What? Driving down to my hometown as I passed to the lake because I went via my mum's to drop something off, a plant that I've bought for her. Right. I got homesick. And I've never, ever felt homesick for Littleborough in my life. I, like, heard that the other way around. Like, you got homesick from where you've just come from. And I was like, you've been out of the house an hour. (laughs) No, I didn't get homesick homesick from my house. I got homesick from where I'd grown up because I thought, you know what? Look how beautiful this is. Look how gorgeous it is and how tranquil it is. And there's no one there. I just now realise why you feel so lucky living here. I do feel lucky living here. It is beautiful. <laughs> anyway, we're not having a massive conversation right now, are we? No, we're, we're not. really not. So we're just going to introduce our guest, who is Luke Worsfold, and he's gone from an emotionally dead drug addict to a fulfilled recovery counsellor running Lisa Inside Addiction following losing his mum at the age of 10. Just hear more about him. So, hi, Luke. Thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure for you to be on my podcast. So, I'm excited to uh, yeah have it the other way around. How long ago was that now? Can you remember? It feels like ages ago. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I, I don't know off the top of my head. But, yeah, like I say, it feels like ages. It does feel like a long time back. But, yeah, anyway, you're here now and that's all that matters. So, we just thought we'd have a little chat about... Um, your company and your counselling service and basically yeah how did you get to this point so the the floor is yours Luke yeah okay so in terms of where the story started I guess one pivotal moment I remember sort of sitting on like a wooden bench at a park around the corner from my house and sitting on this bench I remember that's where I used to go all the time to kind of smoke weed and drink and do drugs and that's just where I went because I lived in a house share and I remember sitting on this bench and I had no money um i was like minus sixteen thousand pounds in debt and i just had a business that had failed and i had clients calling and phone calls i was ignoring um and yeah i just felt ashamed and like i was just buried and like everything was kind of piling on top of me and i remember thinking about all the people i could call to borrow money to get drugs and to sort of keep using and um i had called already everyone i could emotionally leverage and manipulate and I couldn't think of anyone else but I had one last friend in my phone who I didn't want to call and I asked him to call me uh, I called him and asked him to lend me money and um, he said to me Luke you're a crackhead and although at that point I'd never smoked crack it just hit me and just broke through all my denial and I was like Jesus Christ I am an addict I don't know why I'd never seen it before then it was obvious but I was like wow and I thought I'd never be an addict like my mum but when he said that my whole kind of reality just shattered and it was just like wow that is crazy I am just sort of heading towards death and it just was just unbelievable and I felt like I really sat on the bench and reflected and I was like, why am I here? What am I doing? Am I just going to die using drugs and drinking? What's the whole point of this? You know, what's going on? 
Um, and I guess when I look back over my life, the story didn't necessarily start there because I remembered and thought back to when I was born and I was born premature at 26 weeks mm-hmm. and I weighed as much as a bag of sugar and my head was the size of a tennis ball. Um, and, <laughs> and my dad used to, his hands were probably the same size as mine are now, but he used to hold me in his hands and my head would poke out the top of his hands and my little legs would dangle down the bottom of his hands and I was like the size of his hand. Oh, stop it! <laughs> Yeah, ball of mush um, and but the the sort of uh, other side of that was um, I was a cute little prem, prem baby but the reason for that was because my mum she was an alcoholic and she drunk and used drugs and stuff and I was really lucky to kind of survive after having like my lungs collapse loads of times and stuff like that but as I kind of grew up with my mum drinking more and she was in and out of prison and in and out, in and out of rehab I had my sort of two brothers and my dad and there wasn't really much room for emotion and it was never kind of spoken about but it was just like if I showed emotion and cried or something then I would get beaten up or get called gay or a faggot or some derogative name Um, but if I would fight with my brothers or cause a fight then that would be cool that would be masculine boys would be always the three boys fighting is okay so that was just kind of the way the story went, in a sense. Um, and my dad was very consistent. He got on with things, which was amazing, but because uh, he was that sort of consistency in my life. But it also meant that some of my emotional needs, emotional needs didn't get met through him because he was just kind of like, shut down, let's go 100 miles an hour, let's just keep going, be consistent um, and keep going on. So as I grew up, I sort of... Yeah, learn not to show emotions. And then it got to the age when I was kind of going to school. Um, and when I was 10, my mum, she passed away from her drinking. So that led to more kind of anger and resentment and sadness, which I didn't know what to do with those emotions. So I just, yeah, kept fighting people, being angry, because I felt like that was the only emotion I was allowed to show. And um, as I went to school, I just got introduced to sort of drinking and drugs. And I was like, oh, this is quite cool. Takes away all this pain. Um, It just kind of makes sense. And it wasn't like a conscious decision. It was like, I want to be in the cool club. I want to be accepted. I don't want to be abandoned. And I guess these are all the kind of subconscious processes I look back at and think now. So I smoked my first fag, my first joint, you know, drunk alcohol, did my first line of coke, all that kind of stuff. And then I kind of grew up going through school, just using that to regulate my emotions. And then the more stress stress and pressure life gave me, the more I drank and used. And then I went on to fast forward a bit to start my own company after school. And I ran my own business with one of my friends and yeah, it went reasonably well, but I didn't understand how to deal with stress and pressure. And as a young kid, I was like 18 or 20, um, starting a business um, at that age, not really knowing what I was doing was difficult. And it was very stressful having a lot of things to sort of think about and work on. And the more, pressure and stress and fast pace it was the more money we made the more money I spent on stupid things like cars or like living in a nice flat above uh, with a lovely sea view spending loads of money on coke and having parties and just stereotypical stuff like that um but the faster pace 
pace I ran, the more messy it got and just got to a point where it all just kind of imploded. And as I lost my business um, and all of my kind of finances, um, I lost sort of my self-worth, which was at that time attached to my net worth. And then I was just kind of smoking weed more than ever, drinking more than ever, using more drugs. I had to move out of my Seaview flat and uh, into like a house share. And that got me to the point where I was sitting on that park bench you know, heading towards death, just like mum, just thinking, what the fuck is going on? How did I get here? I wasn't meant to do this. This wasn't the plan. Um, and that's when I kind of, yeah, booked my first therapy session. Did you, did you know as a child that your mum had issues with, was it drugs and alcohol with your mum? Yeah. So yeah. Did, did you kind of know, know that at the time? And whatever your answer is, was that kind of just normality for you at that point? Or did you know that that's how you didn't want to be that way? So, yeah, I guess there was always a sense of, um, yeah, mum has this problem or mum is kind of, it felt as if I'm reflecting right now, like a forbidden fruit in a sense. No one said she's an alcoholic or even if they did say that, I didn't understand really what that meant at kind of eight, nine, ten. So it was more just like, Mum had this problem. I didn't know why she had this problem. She just drunk. I didn't really get what that meant. Um, but there was experiences where I would go to see her and she wouldn't necessarily be around and I'd have to like cook a microwave pizza in the, from the freezer by myself and stuff like that. Um, and different memories where she was drunk and stuff like that and I had to carry her home, which was difficult. So as I kind of got older, I started to understand a bit more what that meant, a bit more what kind of, I didn't understand why she was drunk or why this was happening. I was just like, my mum is drunk. And I didn't really kind of know what that meant. Yeah. I mean, trauma runs through families, doesn't it? It's that bit really that is the addiction stimulus, really, the, the trauma. I mean, even being born at 26 weeks, without you remembering that, that is trauma in your body from day one. You, like, were born traumatised. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And I always think about that. I don't really remember what it was like. But even I was born and my hip was out of place um, and my lungs collapsed three times and I wasn't even necessarily with my parents because I was in, in an incubator. So all of that stuff would have created trauma as those neurons were firing. And I had to have three different operations on my hip because they mucked it up a couple of times. And even my dad said, like, the second or third time they took me, the look on my face going back into the theatre room when they had to, like, pry me off my dad's arms was just, like, horrified. Um, I don't really understand. I just and I am in this moment imagining a kid and what that would be like. But just to see, just to think about a young child, me, being pried away from my dad, taken to another surgery at like one years old, not really understanding what that meant, um, is just bonkers to think about. Um, but I don't really kind of remember that experience, but it must play out in some way in yeah, the recesses of my brain. Yeah, it does sit in your body. I mean, I've t I harp on about the book, The Body Keeps the Score, and, you know, it's, it's factual, isn't it, that it, it rests in the body somewhere and comes out later, as something yeah. it, it sounds yeah. like you had quite a good relationship with your dad though regardless of him not being able to meet your emotional needs is that a fair assessment yeah yeah i mean he's always been kind of consistent he's always been there 
Um, he's always, yeah, done good things for me. So, yeah, Dad's always been there, which has been really nice. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I'd love to talk about, you know, that moment at, on the bench where you've now realised and thought, oh, my gosh, because I think everybody will that we speak to that has stopped drinking or taking drugs has that realisation of this is not what I want yeah. anymore. So is that where your recovery started then from that moment? What happened next? Yeah, so what happened next was um, from that moment, I was like, yeah, this is yeah not going to happen. I guess I realised my mum's life was not an example. Her death was the lesson. And it was like, it's so easy just for me to keep doing this and I'll just die a drug addict. This is exactly what she did. Do I really want this? And I was like, no, it just doesn't even make sense. If I'm going to consciously choose to be alive, I don't have to be here. It's my autonomous choice to exist. I might as well not be doing drugs and do something, you know, provide value and make uh, this time spent on earth valuable. I'm going to die at 80 or whatever. Um, so I might as well do something in that time if I'm going to choose to be here. So I decided to, I didn't know what that was or how that even worked out. It was just a, a crazy idea, I guess. Um, but I was like, um, I booked therapy. I just Googled therapist. I watched a lot of um, like mindfulness stuff and a lot of um, audio books and stuff like that. Even when I was using, I was into all that kind of stuff. Um, and I would just, you know, get stoned and listen to an audio book. Um, which was good and also stupid at the same time. But I think it was good to kind of plant the seeds that, that possibility was out there. You can change your thinking, you can change your mind. And once I had that real emotional shift, that sort of propelled me forward. So I just Googled therapist um, and just booked the first one that came up on Google. It was literally as simple as that. Um, and that was because I heard a talk from someone who was talking about authenticity and who spoke about therapy um, a guy named Phil McCann, and, and he was talking about authenticity and becoming your true self um, and going to therapy and stuff like that. And I was like, I want to be my true self. Again, I didn't know what that meant. I just thought it was just cool ideas. I was like, I want to be authentic. I didn't even know what the word meant. I was like, I want to be authentic. I don't feel authentic now, that's for sure. So I was just like, I'm going to go to therapy and I'm going to become authentic. Um, and that was literally as simple, as simple as it was. So I went into my first therapy session um, but even walking into that first therapy session, I felt like I would die from bringing up all that pain. I was like, what's going to happen? Am I going to spontaneously convulse? I just thought I was going to explode. I didn't know. I was just like, I'd never thought about my emotions. I never opened the chest. I just bottled everything up for, you know, like, I can't, uh, like 20 years or something. So I didn't really understand what was going to happen. But then I just kind of blurted everything out. Um, which is funny, being a therapist now, having that experience from the other end uh, is always interesting. But just I blurred everything out, did like an emotional vomit. And then I was like, oh, my God, it's all out there. Um, and then I just kept going back week after week and just untangling the mess of my emotions, kept reading books and meditating and going to the gym and just really started building my life and moving in the right direction. So that, that's like the recovery work mentally and the healing that needed to be done for the trauma. But what about the actual physical addictions and so on? Like, How did you deal with that? Did you do 12 steps? Did you do it on your own? Yeah, so I did go to a few meetings. I've been to NA and uh, I went to AA and I also uh, went a lot to Al-Anon as well. I went to Al-Anon for like the first year or the first couple of years. And I think I kind of chose Al-Anon 
um, perhaps because I was just scared of NA, I was scared of me being in the spotlight, so maybe I put mum in the spotlight subconsciously, and I was like, I'll go to Al-Anon, that makes sense. Um, and then, uh, but that was good. I don't, I'm a fan of the 12 steps, I think it's good. Um, but my own journey was more kind of going along my personal therapy and just delving deep in my emotions. I really like that one-on-one attention and really having the space to dig into my emotions every single week. And in terms of like the physical addictions and stuff, um, I just, I relatively quickly sort of stopped drinking alcohol and stopped doing loads of coke where I moved housing situations. I was just less tempted about doing coke. I couldn't have massive coke parties and stuff. So those things kind of drifted away quite quickly. And I was just mainly focused on like smoking weed every single day, all day. And that was kind of difficult to sort of kick. And that probably took, you know, like nine months from my first therapy session. I would work on it in therapy. I even said to my therapist, though, you know, I'll never stop smoking weed. You're nuts. I'll always smoke weed, which I just think is funny as well now, since I don't smoke weed. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I just kept going to therapy. And as I learned more about my emotions, learned more about my trauma, started to heal some of that stuff. I would then decide to stop smoking weed. Then I'll stop for like a month or so and then something would happen or I would get a call from like someone I owed money to. I still had this whole fucking mess of a business and life to clean up. So as I kind of worked through the shame and took ownership and just drugged through all the mess, um, that took like a good nine months to kind of really sort my life out. Um, but I guess therapy was always there. Whenever I would kind of relapse and start smoking weed again or do coke at the weekend or whatever, I'd just keep going to therapy. I'd never stopped going to therapy and I would always just keep moving forward. Then I'd use for a couple of months and I'd be like, no, no, this is not the one. I need to stop. Now is the time. Then I'd stop again and then I'd relapse again after like a month because something else would happen and I couldn't cope and I'd be like convincing myself I could just have a little bit or... And then it would just spiral out of control. Um, and then, yeah, it just took time. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's, a it's, it's um, interesting that the weed was what they say is the least addictive, and yet that's the one that you went to every time. Yeah, yeah. I think for me, there was a sense of alcohol, I've, called, I've always had a bit of kind of resentment towards because that sort of took mum, in a sense. And I think our drug of choice is also interesting in terms of our uh, personality and our kind of psychodynamics. But for me, it was like alcohol I've always had a bit of anger towards because it took my reminiscent. That was her drug of choice. Mm-hmm. So I've never been like a major fan of that. Um, although I've drunk a lot, I wouldn't say I was like kind of very, very dependent on alcohol. And then with cocaine, I did a lot of cocaine. Um, and that's, yeah, that's before. I've done my fair share, but there was not, um, it wasn't like that was kind of every day. I guess I didn't really like that sort of stimulant of being high on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. I was more like seduced, suppressed, smoking weed, dulling everything down, being lazy, unmotivated, just kind of that low experience rather than the coke every day, like high, 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 a thousand miles an hour. I was like, everything needs to go away. I want to shut off from the world and be a recluse. So that was why it was like the weed. So like everything just needs to be gone, all these phone calls, everything, see you later. I think weed, like you said, then it's meant to be the least addictive. 
I think I disagree with that. I think I disagree. Because, you know, there's still people that I went to school with. You know, like you have a set of mates <laughs> and there's still like a set of lads that I went to school with. And I swear if I walked past them now, they would still be smoking weed. I know they are. And that is like years and years. And it, and it's what you said, it's a... It's the lazy, the subdued, it's, and people don't kind of, I don't know, I think it's underestimated. I don't think it's a physical addiction. I think it's more mentally. The mental, like, oh, it makes me feel like I can numb everything out. I can just be like, slow the world down. And it's kind of cool to do it as well in some circles, isn't it? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like playing the guitar in a dark room with your joint it is yeah. it's kind of that you nearly oh. made me want to do it then <laughs> <laughs> but like I'm interested to find out then because obviously that was your coping strategy albeit not a very healthy one you must have replaced that with healthy ones otherwise you'd still be doing it what are they yeah what are they yeah, <laughs> yeah correct um so yeah just in terms of the weed thing yeah I think it would very much be like a culture a mindset like a very strong perception um, of I smoke weed, that's who I am, it very much becomes your identity. So it's quite hard to give up, although it's not technically like physically addictive, like you say, it can be very kind of ingrained. Like I said to my therapist, I'm never not smoking weed, I'll be 60 and I'll smoke weed. A lot of people kind of think in terms of I'll smoke weed forever. A lot of people think it's not necessarily a drug or they need to give up the other stuff, but weed is okay. Yeah. Um, and in terms of what if I replaced it with, so some of the things I did along my journey, of course, therapy. And I guess therapy was important because I learned to be with my emotions rather than shutting everything out. I learned to sit with them, sit in that uncomfortability, understand that they were even there, understand I even had emotions. And even at the beginning, I was scared to call it a therapist because I didn't know what that meant. So I would call it an emotional bank manager. And I would go and see my emotional bank manager because we have a physical bank account and an emotional bank account. So I was like, I'm going to go and see my emotional bank account. And that helped me kind of, you know, make sense of it in my mind. And they're still saved in my in my calendar today is my emotional bank manager um, just because it's stuck. Um, and, yeah, I go to therapy and I learn to be with my emotions and handle my emotions, have sad days, which is what I think you spoke about on my podcast as well, was a bit about, being with those emotions. You don't have to change the way you feel. It's okay just to feel. that, But that's easier said than done and it's quite hard to learn and harder to do. It's just to sit with that uncomfortability. You know what I picked up on? You must have Googled a really good therapist. Did you stay with that same therapist from the beginning? Because like, there's a lot in there when you Google it. Yeah. Yours sounds really awesome. So one, I think you Googled a really good therapist. Two, at what point did you think, you know what, I really, really could do this myself and I really want to help people? Good question. Patronising. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, at what point? I guess um, after, yeah, I changed, you know, after my therapist helped me so much. I was like, wow, you know, like you say, I just, she had so much of an impact on me and helped me change so much. Um, and of course, you know, it's the client's responsibility to put in the work as well. Um, but it's a team effort. And I think I was like, wow, what an impact that this person had on me. So I guess I believed in therapy. I was a massive fan of it. I didn't necessarily think I would become a therapist. I wasn't sure kind of what I would do 
And I always wanted to run a business and be an entrepreneur. I didn't understand how therapy would fit into that necessarily. But what actually happened was my stepmom, she worked at a university, the local university, and she liked to push me to do random things. So I was working, running a different business at the time in recovery, going through um, yeah, the motions of working, healing myself. And I just got a random text saying, oh, I've booked you in for an interview for a degree on Thursday. And I was like, what the fuck is going on here? But what <laughs> happened is my stepmom walked past a lecturer and the lecturer said, oh, I've got a few spaces left on my counselling degree programme. And my stepmom was like, oh, Luke will do that, book him in. And I was like, okay. So I just get around and text and booked in for um, uh, like a, an interview for a degree. And I was like, okay, I've never done a degree. I've never said I want to do a degree. This is random. I was like, I'm open-minded. I was in recovery. I was like reading all these books. I was like, I'm open-minded. I'll go to an interview with anyone in the world. I'm just excited about life. So I went along and I spoke to the lady and it was awesome. She was like, you're going to learn about human behavior and people and why people do things and how to help people. I was like, I already love that. That's what I'm doing right now. I've been studying myself and being in therapy for ages. I was like, this is amazing. And then... I wasn't quite sure about that, like taking on a three-year commitment to do a degree. So I went to therapy and checked my kind of um, internal locus of evaluation, what I believed versus the belief of my stepmom, you know, telling me to do something because I had to rectify that decision. Am I doing it for me or am I doing it just because she set it up? And I thought about it and I discussed it with my therapist and dug deep inside. And I was actually, this is something I really want to do. I really want to help people and seeing the person I've become after learning all this stuff for three years was just so interesting. So I was like, well, I'm going to do it. And then that was it. I just started doing a degree um, and the rest is history. Oh, and you've actually named your business in memory of your mum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's called... Yeah. Before I read that, I was like, why is it, why is it, why is the name Lisa in there? It really confused me the first time that we spoke. But reading yeah. it, it was in memory of your mum. Yeah, no, yeah, and like you say, it's in memory of her, um, and I thought it's good to have that sense of like meaning and connection, um, and then the second bit is inside addiction because it's good just to go inside addiction for the podcast and all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, it's really interesting. Is it all about addiction, the therapy that you do, or is it? Um, well, yes and no. I'd say yes, it's about addiction, but as all three of us know addiction is rarely about doing drugs or drinking it's about all the other stuff it's off the ice all that other stuff that's going on in life so yeah it's about addiction but and coping strategies and all that mindful stuff but it's also about you know the trauma and healing and all of the emotional stuff around life to help as well and highly personal and i know i'm kind of interrogating you rather than asking you things now are you still no, the, you still with a counsellor yourself now yeah, yeah, yeah. So I still have the same counsellor um, that I see, um, which I enjoy. I still go and check in and see her, which is good. And I'm still working on myself. Um, and yeah, just I think there will always be 
an evolution and a process. And sometimes as a man, I want to complete things. My masculine energy wants to complete everything. So it's hard to just rectify that. But I think I'm always peeling away on layers of the onion um, and always just moving forward. And I think that's important in a therapist and being in this profession is to just keep working on myself, keep reading books, keep learning, keep facing that uncomfortable anxiety of growth um, and keep moving forward. Oh, I think you've done amazing, I really do. It's like a full-on circle. And, and, and you must feel really like proud of yourself that you have broken that cycle of addiction in your family going forwards. Yeah, no, I think it's good. And I think, yeah, just to have learned that kind of lesson and to understand it and to, yeah, not drink and use drugs as a result of my emotions and be able to manage them and handle them is really just good. And like you say, to understand that is nice. Um, and, yeah, it just gives me that sense of fulfilment. So what's next for Luke then? What's next for Luke? Um yeah, I want to say world domination. Uh, <laughs> Why not do it? Why not? Yeah. No, um, Luke, than what's going on at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've just got yeah loads of plans. I mean, I'm only 26. I feel young. I feel like I've come a long way, but I feel like it's nothing in terms of where I can go. Um, I want to have an impact on yeah the industry and keep working on myself. Um, I, there's lots of online programs and stuff I want to develop. I want to keep working one to one with clients. I feel like now. I'm sort of maturing as a counsellor, which is nice to feel that sense of confidence to not feel like a beginner anymore. Mm. So really taking that forward, working myself and becoming better. I just, I guess I really enjoy everything addiction and I love being in that world, being reminded of it, learning about the brain and psychology. Why do we do the things we do? What's going on? How can we learn more? How can I help better? How can I build better programs? How can I build video courses? How can I help family members? What more can I do? How can I make the process more frictionless, more accessible? So I guess I always sort of grapple with all of these questions and I guess they're ones I'll be continuing to answer forevermore. But that's kind of what's next is keep working, um, learning, and I guess working on myself because I need to give for my overflow. So being able to stay sharp and keep pushing forward is kind of my main focus. I think you're going to do amazing, Luke. If you think you're 26 now and everything that you've experienced and how far you've come in that short amount of time is mm. just so inspiring. It really is. I it makes you a bit think, envious, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah because it makes you a bit envious. You're like, wait, wait, 40, 41, 41 and 42 thinking, oh, we didn't actually, the penny didn't drop till we yeah. hit 40, 30, late 30s. You've got like... Years, I'm not going to even add it up. I can't do it. You've got years on us, do you know what I mean? Years ahead and you're already like learning so much about yourself. And this is what it needs. I think there's such a huge stigma now around having a therapist, going to therapy. And it's weird because I think we're one of the only countries that still has a stigma around seeing a therapist. People still see, say it jokingly like, oh, I'd see a therapist yeah, for that. see a counsellor, you've got your shoes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's still around, especially in our kind of age group, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think it's getting better because I think... I think kind of the younger and your generation and, and below 
are, are quite open to just working on the mental health and working on the inside, it, it seems a lot more acceptable. Maybe. Yeah, and I think with a lot of kind of um, YouTube and stuff like that and the internet and social media, a lot of things have become more accessible um, and there's been more mental health in the media and stuff like that. But even me, I didn't want to say I had a therapist or that I say in my kind of therapist. I was like, I've got an emotional bank manager. Yeah. It just, I don't know. I just didn't want to have a therapist. I'm a man. And men can't have therapists. Just these random beliefs we get from society and from our family um, that just, they don't make logical sense, but they're just the feelings and our kind of beliefs. But I think moving to a world where we can be more open about it and take our mental health seriously is awesome. I really hope that is the case, you know. I yeah, really I do. do. I think it is so especially important. For especially for men. Yeah, definitely. And just talking from an early, early age, we need to learn about how to deal with our emotions. Because it's, people do it. You know, yeah. like, it used to be very much, didn't it? Like, oh, boys don't cry, boys don't this, boys don't. You know, my, my four-year-old has full-on tantrums still. And I watched my husband really struggling with stop it, stop it. And I just, I, I've started to put my hand up and just say, leave him. Let him get it out. And then we'll, and he's, and then he sits down and I say, now what was that about? And it, I just think encouraging little things like that. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. Who knows? But. I don't know. My 18-year-old son still has tantrums <laughs> like that. <laughs> Does he throw himself on the floor? And Pretty keep his much, yeah. <laughs> I know I, I think you're right in the sense of like holding the space for children and even you know teens to be able to explore their emotions share what's going on what is happening why are you feeling like that rather than just saying don't feel don't cry it's inconvenient for you to be crying right now because we're in the supermarket and it's not necessarily about having a therapy session in the middle of the supermarket either it's just acknowledging that there's feelings there and that the child is experiencing them and that they're sad or unhappy um, and then talking about it more in depth in a more appropriate situation but I'm not a parent so I don't really know much about that but that's just my theory and opinion. Yeah I think you've definitely hit the nail on the head when you talked about like the emotional availability of parents though so even though you're not a parent you recognise that you didn't have emotionally available parents in that way so you know who knows one day never you never know you might be a very emotional available available parent. <laughs> yeah don't get me wrong, I lose it on a frequent basis as well. It's hard yeah. not to. <laughs> is, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you want to share? Um, I'm just trying to think. Uh, yeah, just the main stuff about, yeah, kind of like my story and stuff like that. I think we've gone over a lot of things um, that's on my mind. Um, in terms of like tools and stuff like that and some other stuff that I used in terms of recovery, maybe helpful to talk about a few more things in that regard. Mm -hmm. So obviously therapy was amazing. Having that space to learn to feel my emotions was really good. But I think that's one piece of the puzzle. I think the other piece of the puzzle is it can be challenging just to feel things and not know how to change your behaviour. And that's sort of where mindfulness and meditation came in, being able to sort of recognise my thoughts, understand, okay, this is why I'm having a thought, understanding where it comes from emotionally, but then being able to think, okay, just because I feel stressed and anxious and shameful and guiltful, I understand those emotions are occurring because I've failed my business. That's good. I learned that in therapy. But I then need to use mindfulness 
you know, to recognise the thought that says, you know, go and do a line of coke or go and smoke a big fat joint. Yeah. And then I need to understand that that thought does not equal an action or decision and focus on gratitude and my goals and my focus and the light at the end of the tunnel and be able to change that behaviour in the here and now. So that's kind of what meditation and mindfulness really taught me was that ability to sort of change behaviour, not just act out on my emotions, not just kind of keep going in the wrong direction. That really helped. Um, and another thing that helped was exercise. Um, I was always beginning to exercise and going to the gym. And I guess that taught me a lot of self-love. I didn't have a very good body image um, was one thing that I kind of struggled with from having scars and stuff from my hip and being bullied in school that kind of stuff um so going to the gym helped in terms of just looking at myself in the mirror which i never did at the beginning um and yeah at the beginning there definitely was some vanity i want to look buff and then get loads of women of course that's okay to start for those reasons i'm a guy i'm not saying that's wrong but over time i started to focus less on that and think about wow i do look amazing i'm putting in effort into my body i care about myself i'm seeing these results and i just w went for me and i really enjoyed that process and continue to enjoy working on my body and just caring about myself and having that physical appearance for me is good i like to be kind of in shape and it just reminds me that you know i'm working on myself and it helped develop that sense of self-love and care for myself you know i'm not going to the gym to please anyone else for anyone else only i'm going to get the muscle no one else is going to get it so that was really taught me some really good lessons as well especially early on and building that kind of consistency so there's just a couple of things oh and also one more thing was books reading a lot so a lot of psychoeducational information you don't know what you don't know i was like reading so many books about theories of just mindfulness and meditation and psychology and personal development and business and all this stuff was just so interesting and i still read now um, but reading books was amazing just to learn so much stuff i think as well when you talk about the exercise and the mindfulness like the, the chemicals, the endorphins released and obviously adrenaline and, and all those kind of other hormones and chemicals that can just make you feel less stressed or at least become tools to cope with it. We were having a conversation this morning, actually, because you're actually right in the middle of us in that you use both. OK, so I really struggle with some of the mindfulness. I'm getting better and I make conscious effort to work on myself, and you are less inclined, I'm being very polite, aren't I? <laughs> less inclined to do the exercise. Yeah, I don't exercise. I walk. Well, you do. You I, do. I, you I, don't do the typical gym stuff. No, that's what I mean. Yeah. I go for walks. Um, I have to because I've got the dog. <laughs> but I did, I did do that before anyway, and I think it's, you know, on the days when I don't really want to do it, having my dog really helps me get out because I'd find it hard to go. But like you say, yeah, I'm a lot more into meditation. In fact, we're doing um, a little bit of a challenge in our members group at the moment. And it started out as like doing for everyone to do 50 burpees a day, yeah. was it? Yeah. And then some people have started doing different things. And then I put mine on this morning and I did 50 breaths. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone else has got these time lapses of them up and down, up and down. And mine's just like, you can see me breathing in and out. <laughs> But, you know, it, but it's, it's important to show that there isn't one method to fit all, is that there, there are so many ways of recovering, of healing, of self-care. And if you can do a balance of them, great. Oh, yeah. But, you know, to be able to 
show people you might fit into this category, you might fit into that is, is helpful. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think, um, yeah, like you say, having all of those different approaches are good. Um, I would also say that um, it depends on how you're doing it. But for me, I find exercise is quite meditative and mindfulness in terms of the active mindfulness. So there's a sense of when I'm riding my bike, for example, um, and I go to the skate park and do tricks and stuff, I'm not thinking about work on my phone or text messages or anything. I'm solely focused on that activity. Um, my, I'm completely present in that moment. If I'm not, then I may hurt myself and fall off, so I'm not going to be able to do that. So I have to be present, and it commands my attention. So it is that kind of constant active mindfulness. And then there's a sense of mindfulness where I sit down for 10 minutes and just observe my mind freely, um, which I would say is just like a different type of mindfulness. What were you going to say, Mia? I was saying, yeah, uh, <laughs> that mindfulness can be brought into everything. It's not I'm just what, like, what Luke yeah. was saying. It's not about just kind of sitting there. It's being aware, like you can be mindful when you're walking, when you're running, when you're doing Listen, your Listen, I've just discovered mindful like, eating. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. You are doing so well. <laughs> so where can people find you, Luke? Because I think that, you know, what you're doing sounds amazing and it'd be good if people can have a little search and find out more for themselves as well. Yeah. So the best place to go to is insideaddiction.co.uk forward slash foundation. And there people can download um, a free book that has seven foundational tools they can start to learn. Like some we've talked, spoken about in terms of meditation, um, stuff like that, and exercise, all those kind of things. So that's kind of the best place. And they can read a bit more about the story. They can see your podcast as well. If they go to insideaddiction.co.uk forward slash addiction-podcast, they can see your podcast and listen to you, which was amazing. I recommend they go and do that um, if they want to find more about Alex and Lisa, which is awesome. Um, so, yeah, head over to the website and everything's yeah. kind of yeah. Oh, thank you so much. We'll put the link for your website on the description of this podcast so people can easily find it as well. And I think that's such a lovely thing to do. Offering free tools, it's always yeah. nice to kind of pick up, isn't it? Yeah. You and, interesting things that can help us on our journey so thank you and thank you so much for your time today you, honestly you are such an inspiration and i just think you should be so proud of yourself what you do you're changing lives it's amazing yeah, yeah. yeah thank you so much and you two should both be proud as well i know you've both got an amazing journey having heard it and the work you do is amazing so all of the people in the industry together we're all having an impact and i think that's important and the more we can help each other, being on each other's podcasts and sharing messages and helping everyone out, I think it's amazing. Um, and just, yeah, the more people we can reach, and I guess that's my goal, the more people that can not die like mum, the better. And, you know, like you two, you're both mums, um, and you, you came out of it. And I think that's inspiring and amazing as well. So you both should be insanely proud. Oh, thank you. Thank Lily. you. Yeah. Oh, I think virtual hug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. And hopefully we will set up something and speak again soon. Yeah, no, amazing. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Luke. Bye. Bye.